This is Guns and Butter. And here is a more extended analysis of what they appear to have done to the photograph so that, you know, they made a lot of moves in order to conceal the fact that Lee Oswald was there in the doorway. I imagine, can you imagine a more powerful proof of his innocence and of the complete fraud of the Warren Commission report than that Lee Oswald was captured in the doorway during the shooting and cannot possibly have even been a shooter, much less the lone assassin? I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. James Fetzer. Today's show, The Assassination of America, Part 2. Jim Fetzer is McKnight Professor Emeritus at the University of Minnesota Duluth and author and researcher. He organized, moderated, and gave the keynote address at the 50th John Fitzgerald Kennedy Commemoration in Santa Barbara, California on November 22, 2013. This one-day event was hosted by the Oswald Innocence Campaign and featured cutting-edge research on the death of our 35th president. Today, in part two of Jim Fetzer's brilliant presentation, The Assassination of America, he completes Framing the Patsy and covers The Impossible Shot, The Faking of Zapruder, How It Was Done, and takes questions from the audience. Jim Fetzer begins with the Alchins photo, which is a photograph of Lee Harvey Oswald standing in the doorway of the Dallas Book Depository watching the presidential motorcade pass by. Doorman refers to Oswald. Bill Lovelady is another man standing near Oswald in the doorway. Dr. James Fetzer. Here's the famous Alchins. If you look in circle one, you can see the through and through hole in the windshield is a small white spiral nebula with a dark hole in the center. Jack, of course, is clutching his throat. It's where his left ear would be if his left ear were visible. Background circle number two, of course, is our man in the doorway, about whom you've heard a great deal already. Number three is the window to a broom closet of a uranium mining company that was a CIA asset from which those three shots with the unsilenced weapon were fired. And then fourth is how Lyndon Johnson's Secret Service detail is already responding, even though uh, JFK's is looking around as though they have no idea what's actually taking place. Here you can see a close-up of the through-and-through hole in the windshield. So, as I explained, when it was taken back to uh, Ford, uh, they replaced the windshield and put in a clean windshield. So what we're looking at on the right is yet a third windshield the Secret Service produced that had some spider-like cracks caused by a fragment from behind, which they claimed had been on on the limousine in Dealey Plaza, which was false, and which you can also see to be false from frame 225 of the Zabruder film, where you can actually see the hole in the windshield. Here's the famous doorway area about which... Ralph has so convincingly spoken. Here are the handwritten notes of Will Fritz. When I first learned that Lee had told Fritz that he was out with Bill Shelley in front, it took me to looking at studies of the Alchins photograph. And uh, I was simply astonished to find that a a man's face had been obfuscated. Look look there, uh, just below where Billy Lovelady's holding his arms, there's a man's face that's been scratched out. 
And, you know, it occurred to me then that that must have been Oswald because they would only obfuscate a face on a photograph like this if someone was there who shouldn't have been there. The only one I could imagine who shouldn't have been there would have been Lee Oswald, and therefore I inferred that this was Oswald. And I published an article, JFK, what we know now that we didn't know then on the occasion of the 49th observance. And it was my doing so in publishing a collage that had been on the website of John McAdams, of all people, since he may be the most notorious lone nutter of them all, which involved a collage, I'll show it here, with all the features that have been used to try to obfuscate the issue. But the point is that I put an orange circle around the obfuscated face and said that that appeared to be Oswald to me. Ralph has already explained how the man in the doorway is missing his left shoulder, how the black tie man behind him is both in front of him and behind him at the same time. And, of course, Billy Lovelady holding his arms up has his face obfuscated. There is a black man's profile further down that is very peculiar, that obfuscates, you know, the more tattered parts of Oswald's distinctive shirt, doorman's distinctive shirt. And, and uh, you know, those are among the anomalies that tell us that something is wrong with this photograph. I mean, you can't have a man with a missing shoulder. You can't have a man both in front of and behind someone else in the photograph not be doctored, much less the missing face. So it has simply dumbfounded me that there are persons I heretofore regarded as perfectly intelligent who can look at this photograph and say they don't see anything odd about it. Here's the clavicle. The man's missing his shoulder bone. What could be more blatant than that? Plus, here are multiple. I mean, I'm telling you what these guys have done, and I'm talking about Richard Hook and Larry Rivera and Ralph Sinkay and Claire Kuhn and, 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 and DK, KD Ruckman, all of whom have made contributions. I've now published at least a dozen articles about the doorman issue in Veterans Today. I don't think I've published a dozen articles on any other subject in my life. And I have published a lot. That reflects the magnitude of importance of this issue. Here is just a, one sample of what you've seen many more here in terms of these posters that Richard has done, where he's been simply brilliant in identifying features of this very distinctive shirt on the man in the doorway that are the same as features on the very distinctive shirt that Lee was wearing. And here, of course, is Billy Lovelady, the shirt he took to the FBI when they asked him to come and show them the shirt he had worn on that day. It's that red and white vertically striped short sleeve shirt where in the background there, they appear to have altered the face of Billy to add some features of Oswald, just as they altered Oswald's face in the doorway to add some features of Billy to make it more difficult to disentangle when you focus on the face. You know, as I mentioned before, I don't think they had any real choice about it because the, the figure was there, and if they just took it out, too many photographs and films showed it that they would be embarrassing, it would be too blatant, so they had to leave it in and do what they could within the parameters of the possible and the time frame within which they were operating. This is the FBI report. See, the underline says this was a shirt he was wearing, the red and white shirt with short sleeve, Hoover had written to them to say he wanted confirmation that the man in the doorway was Billy Lovelady. Agents who don't satisfy Hoover's expectations are dealt with rather harshly, so rather than be sent to Alaska for their next assignment, they took the photographs and sent back the report saying this confirms that he was the man in the doorway, even though it refutes it. But, of course, Billy was in the doorway. He just wasn't the man that Hoover was asking about. So they traded on the ambiguity and, to the best of my knowledge, did not suffer severe repercussions. 
There's a wonderful, a wonderful study that Richard put together of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, where Ralph has done quite a good job of explaining the differences between the two and why they ought not to be confused, where a Hyde does indeed look like a gorilla and, and Billy looks like a fairly normal guy. Here's an early sketch of Richard's about how they took features of Billy and added them to obfuscate the face. There's that bulging out of the chin, by the way, that I think is completely abnormal. I don't believe that was there to begin with either. And here is a more extended analysis of what they appear to have done to the photograph for which Richard is also responsible. So that, you know, they made a lot of moves in order to conceal the fact that Lee Oswald was there in the doorway. I imagine, can you imagine a more powerful proof of his innocence and of the complete fraud of the Warren Commission report than that Lee Oswald was captured in the doorway during the shooting and cannot possibly have even been a shooter, much less the lone assassin? This is the... John McAdams collage, just look at it, it's a masterpiece of disinformation. Look how many of the disparate elements that Ralph and Larry too have dissected that went together to try to perpetrate the deception. I mean, it's really fascinating, all in one. We were rebutted by members of different research forums producing newspapers from obscure sources that purported to show that the Alchin's photograph had been, had been published early in the day. And, and it was fascinating because they all seemed to be very, very uh, obscure. And, and Ralph, and I praise his ingenuity for this, discovered for the Beacon Hill News Palladium that he, he found both the authentic newspaper on the left and the CIA-fabricated version on the right. Millions of dollars, taxpayers' dollars, have been expended to perpetuate the deception that, that, that uh, Lee Oswald was the lone gunman who killed John F. Kennedy, which was to cast responsibility in precisely the opposite direction because it actually was a powerful group of special interests and multiple shooters who took off JFK. So what better form of distraction could there possibly be than to blame it on a lone gunman and, and imply that he had ties to Cuba and was a communist sympathizer when actually he'd been working for the government? But here, just look at this. This is just simply stunning. These are the two editions for 22 November 1963, the real on the left, the phony on the right. That is your CIA using your taxpayers' money to deceive you, the American public. And here's an additional document, actually, that uh, I think Larry may have turned up uh, that showed a discussion at the highest level of members of, of life and others about the Alchin's photograph. They're saying here we're going to publish it on Saturday. As Ralph has already mentioned, Walter Cronkite appears to have been the first who showed it on television uh, already on Friday, but nonetheless, it, it had been altered for all that. Here's one of the last photographs of Jack and Jackie as they're turning from Houston on to Maine. Look in the background at those two vans, the big one especially. Uh, this may have been the command and control center for the assassination. Notice how easily a, a rifleman could have been in, in either of those buildings. John Costella, who is another member of the research group I organized in 1992, who has a PhD in physics with a specialty in electromagnetism, the properties of light and of images of moving objects, has done absolutely spectacular work on the Zapruder film. If you go to assassinationscience.com, uh, one of my first, maybe my very first website, you'll find a, a, a visual tutorial 
where John takes you through the Zapruder film and shows multiple indications of fraud and fakery in the film, even though technically overall it's a very good piece of work. It's, it's very interesting how much had to be done in producing it. Here's that uh, early frame where I mentioned already when we were watching of the motionless spectators. Now we have at least a half a dozen individuals who have seen what appears to be the unedited film. And they point out, among other features, that you can see the turn from Houston on to Elm, which the Pruder claimed he had taken. He said he began filming when the motorcade turned from Houston on to Elm, and he filmed continuously until it exited under the triple underpass. But, of course, we got that great discontinuity. They say the bystanders were cheering and waving just as much as other bystanders were elsewhere in the, in the motorcade. Here's one frame that John finds especially interesting. Well, this has got the uh, umbrella man on the left. You can barely see him, and the Cuban raising his fists, which may well have been the signal to the Greer to pull the limo to the left and to a halt. The umbrella man is pumping his umbrella. It appears to have been a visual signal that could be seen from all six of the locations from which shots were fired. That means keep shooting because the target is still alive. Here you have the Umbrella Man and the Cuban again in different locations from different views. Uh, We appear to have been able to identify them. The Umbrella Man appears to have been Roy Hargraves, the Cuban Felipe Vidal Santiago. In in an interview with Noel Twyman, who published Bloody Trees and Hargraves, admitted he was in Dallas that day as a support team for the assassination and that they were acting on orders from J.W. Wave, which was the only CIA base ever officially founded in the United States. Here's frame 313, where you see the blowout. It was published in Life magazine, and comment number six says, this is the frame that determined the direction from which the bullet was fired. Now, that's very difficult because it's a still frame, right? You need at least two points to determine a direction or a line. And in the blood spray, and this is a point John Costello makes, dis- dissipates almost immediately. In other words, if this were real blood spray, it ought to have remained for a number of frames, but it virtually disappears instantly. The Zapruder film was running at uh, 18.3 frames per second. So we're talking about a very brief interval of time. And in fact, Noel consulted with a... Uh, with an expert in cinematography from Hollywood by the name of Roderick Ryan, who, who told uh, Noel that the blood spray and the blob, the seeming bilging out of brains to the right front, had both been painted in. Uh, Ryan would receive the Academy Award for his contributions to cinematography in the year 2000. When these frames were initially published in the supporting volumes, uh, instead of the proper order 13, 14, 15, 16, they were published in the order 13, 15, 14, 16, which considerably mitigates the back and to the left motion that's such a striking feature of the extant film. Uh, but in fact, as uh, David Lifton discovered when he consulted with Richard Feynman, the, the world-famous physicist at Caltech, there's discernible, measurable motion forward of JFK's head, between frame 312 and 313. And then there's the backward motion. So that what they appear to have done is those two shots I described, he's hitting the back and he slumps forward, then Jackie's in back, and then then he's hitting the right temple and slumps over to the left. They appear to have merged those. So they got like one frame of his falling forward from being hit in the back of the head, and then a whole lot of frames which they edited from the backward slump. Because if you look at, you know, a chart... 
in relation to the film, they simply seem to have taken out too many frames and made it much too violent so that actually he was just sort of gradually, but when they took out all the frames, it got real jerky and, and really inconsistent with what actually happened. Not a single witness at Dealey Plaza reported that back into the left motion that is such a distinctive feature of the extant version of the Zapruder film. You're listening to author and researcher Dr. James Fetzer. Today's show, The Assassination of America, Part 2. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Here is uh, Jean Hill in the red and Mary Mormon who was taking photographs with a Polaroid. So she'd, in those days, you had to take the photograph and have it coated with a preservative. So she would take the photograph and hand them to Jean, who would then coat it with preservative. And here, 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 here are two uh, photographs in black and white that struck Noel because on the left you see uh, Jean and Hill are in focus, but the background is blurred. But on the right, both the background and the foreground are in focus. And when he asked Roderick Ryan, to explain it, Roderick said, well, when you're panning the, you know, moving with the limousine, the background's going to be blurred. And the reason it's not blurred in the second frame is because the limousine was no longer in motion. But what's striking about Jean and Mary is that Jean said she stepped out in the street and called over, hey, Mr. President, look over here. We want to take your picture. She was in the street. And that Mary actually stepped out in the street and took the photograph, very famous, I'll show you, a fraction of a second after Jack was hit. So here's some frames that seem to show it, but they've been very consistent. I mean, Jean Hills has a book where she talks about it. Jean Hill also said, and she was widely belittled for this, that she was close enough to look inside and there was a little white dog in between Jack and Jackie. She was just ridiculed for that. But Jack White, who was a very diligent student, discovered multiple photographs of what was a little fluffy white dog. It was a hand puppet, this lamb chop that some fan had given to Jackie. So that an argument that was intended to discredit her actually reinforces her credibility because she was close enough to see something no one else had seen, namely this little white hand puppet, which she described as a little dog, and that's certainly close enough approximation. So uh, they appear to be perfectly uh, credible witnesses. And, 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 and here's the photograph that, that, that Mary took, and it, it turns out that up in the corner there of the photograph, there's a, the image of a police officer firing a weapon. He's referred to as Badge Man. Uh, I will identify him subsequently. Uh, but the, the, this, this shot appears to have missed because uh, he would have injured Jackie and they were under strict instructions that she should not be harmed. So here's an overview about those who have seen the film. And we got, uh, you know, William Raymond, who's a French investigative journalist who's seen the film. Uh, Rich Delarosa, who ran the JFK Research Forum, has seen the film. Uh, Gregory Burnham, a longtime student of the death of JFK. Uh, Rich and, and Greg both have seen the film on multiple occasions, believe it or not. And they all agree that it includes the turn from Houston onto Elm, that Greer brought the limousine to an abrupt halt, that JFK is hit twice in the head during the stop, and we know other events that take place. Uh, such as Clint Hill rushing forward, which I've already described, but also that an officer on the right front, right side, named James Cheney, motors forward during the limo stop to tell Chief Curry that JFK has been hit. 
And he's still there with Chief Curry when the limousine finally accelerates. I mean, Greer remains looking back at JFK until he's dead, and then he accelerates. But also, in the meanwhile, Clint Hill has got up and is lying across the back seat, which, interestingly, even Roy Kellerman confirmed in his testimony of the Warren Commission. He said he looked back and he saw Clint Hill lying across the trunk. It was actually across the back seat, but it looked to him as though it were the trunk. So this... this this blowout here, you know, is actually painted in, and we have the blob. See how noticeable now that's becoming. That's been painted in, too, to try to create the impression of brains bulging out to the right front. There's more of the blob, and more of the blob. And if you were to look at those frames, you'd find actually that the, that the passengers, Conley and his wife Nellie, as well as Kellerman and Greer, are thrown forward during these frames when the limo is supposed to be accelerating, which meant they kept some of those frames with the abrupt halt when they reconstructed the film, but they should be being pulled back while the limo accelerates. Here's Clint Hill at a bookstore in San Diego reporting all those activities I've described to you, you can find this online in an article in mine entitled, Who's Telling the Truth, Clint Hill or the Zapruder Film? Here's as close as Clint gets to Jackie in the extant film, okay? And, and notice it's not all that close. As I mentioned, she went after a chunk of Jack's skull and brains, which she held in her hand all the way to Parkland. After they had pried Jack's body out of her hands and she composed herself, she walked into the trauma room one, went to the anesthesiologist, extended her hand and said, will this help? But the fact that Clint Hill described what he actually did, and this is the most we see in the Zapruder as further evidence, since Clint was lying across the back seat, this photograph is clearly a fake. In fact, it's very odd the limousine is so close to the curb in this photograph. This is known as the Alchin 7, which Alchins himself could not recall having taken. There have been questions about whether Zapruder took the Zapruder film. Jack White noticed that here his secretary uh, Marilyn Seitzman seems to be blocking or obstructing his view. The answer to this question actually is very clear-cut. Uh, Zapruder did not take the Zapruder film because no one took a film that was faked. We know what was done with it. It was taken to the, uh, the original was taken to the National Photographic Interpretation Center in Washington on Saturday, the 23rd. It was an 8mm all-ray split film developed in Dallas. They had to go out and have a store owner open his shot to get an 8mm camera so they could project it. But then on Sunday, a 16mm unsplit film was brought to the National Photographic Interpretation Center from a secret CIA lab in Rochester adjacent to Kodak headquarters known as Hawkeye Works. This is when and the substitution was made. Indication that Abraham Zutapruder was involved is evident here during a TV interview. He described a bulging brains out the front of JFK's head, which did not occur. And here, again, this is a frame where if you look at the back of JFK's head, this is frame 317, you can see how it's blacked out. Here's the frame 374, so you can see the difference, which is already proof of alteration. Here's a combination of several frames where you can see it blacked out, and then on the right you can see the blowout, so that a group of Hollywood film restoration experts have confirmed that it was painted over in black and indeed very crudely. And here's the umbrella man and the, the, the Cuban just sitting very calmly as though nothing had happened. So how was it done? Jack was hit four different times. He was hit in the back by that shot fired from the top of the county records building. He was hit in the throat by the shot that passed through the windshield, fired from the south end of the triple underpass. During the limo stop, he was hit in the back of the head by a shot fired from the Dow Tex, and then in the right temple by a shot fired from the triple underpass. The shooting sequence in its totality looked like this. 
He was hit in the back by a shot fired from the top of the county records building in the throat by a shot fired as described. There were the three shots from the unsilenced Manlicker Carcano, one of which missed and injured the distant bystander. Another hit the chrome strip and made that indentation. The third hit Jack in the back of the head. He, he fell forward. There was a shot from the grassy knoll that missed. And then the, the fatal shot was there. Well, the, the one in the back of the head might have been fatal. But there was a shot that entered the right temple from the north end of the triple underpass. The shooters on the top of the county ro- records building that appears to have been fired by Dallas Deputy Sheriff Harry Weatherford using a 30-06. He'd recently obtained a, a silencer, a high-quality silencer. That appears to have been fired with a, a, a larger caliber weapon, a 30-06, firing a Mandlicker Carcano bullet to implant it in the body using a small plastic collar known as a sabot. From the south end of the triple underpass, uh, this shot appears to have been fired by an Air Force expert by the name of Jack Lawrence. He went to work for an automobile dealership, the same one that put up all the automobiles for the motorcade, which were different makes and models, very peculiar in colors, but it meant that the conspirators could then know where everyone was in the motorcade. Uh, After the shooting, he went back to the book dealership, and he was all muddy and vomiting and nauseated, having made his escape through the sewer system. The shots through the, through the, from the Dow texts appear to have been fired by an, an anti-Castro uh, Cuban by the name of Nestor Tony Escadero. Remarkably enough, if you go down to Freedom Park in Little Havana, you'll find in the, in there are two statues there. One is to Jose Marti, who liberated Cuba from Spanish domination. The other to Nestor Tony Escadero, of whom no one has ever heard. If you ask someone, you know, why there's a statue to him, if they're in the know, they might tell you because he took care of business. Here is a, when they announced it, and a picture of his, his wife, you know. Then that shot from the grassy knoll that missed appears to have been fired by Roscoe White, who was a Dallas police officer who was working for the CIA. The, 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 the shot that hit the right temple appears to have been fired from the north end of the triple underpass by Frank Sturgis. This guy worked for the, for the Meyer Lansky syndicate. Uh, he also worked for the CIA. And through the Meyer Lansky syndicate, there seemed to have been ties to Israel in fact, uh, Jack was having a really contentious relations with David Ben-Gurion, who was the principal founder of and the first prime minister of Israel, over whether Israel should have the right to develop nuclear weapons, which JFK opposed. Ben-Gurion, in a, in a fit of disgust after receiving a letter from JFK about it, resigned as prime minister. Um, and and uh, it appears that James Jesus Angleton, who would later retire to Israel, also was operating on behalf. He was the legendary counter-espionage agent. Uh, Frank Sturgis was arrested by a Gold Shield New York City detective named Jim Rothstein, whom I know personally. Uh, he, he came to New York to kill Marita Lawrence, so she couldn't testify before the HSCA. She had been a paramour of Fidel's, and she knew all about the operation. Uh, he, but, but Rothstein intercepted him. Uh, he, he, they had a conversation about the shooting, and, and I think Rothstein you know, said something like, good shooting. And, and, and Frank Sturgis said that he'd shot him because he had betrayed the brigade at the Bay of Pigs and that he was cavorting with women who were foreign spies and therefore a threat to national security. I believe there's an important dimension here of Israeli involvement in the background that, that requires additional investigation, though Michael Collins Piper has a book about it entitled Final Judgment. Here's a shot fired from the book depository, one of 
as many as three that were fired at John Connolly in the mistaken belief it was Ralph Yarborough. These appear to have been fired by Malcolm Mac Wallace. This was Lyndon's personal hitman. He murdered as many as 12 people for Lyndon, including one of his own sisters. Lyndon had a huge argument with JFK that morning trying to get Connolly out and Yarborough in, but JFK overrode him on the ground that the chief executive of the state should ride with the chief executive of the United States. Here's a photograph of George Herbert Walker Bush standing in front of the Book Depository building. I found this in Jesse Curry's JFK assassination file, which he had published after he left the Dallas police and became the head of security for 7-Eleven stores. It was only published in paperbacks for them. Here are more photographs of Bush to make it very clear, and I think there is no doubt about it that this is George Herbert Walker Bush. Now, when the three tramps were escorted through Dealey Plaza, I'm quite convinced that they were the backup patsies. I got to know the third of the three who was not E. Howard Hunts, but rather Chauncey Marvin Holt, who was a counterfeiter who actually had worked as the accountant for Meyer Lansky. Uh, it's a long story and a fascinating one, but I had produced a four-and-a-half-hour documentary about the assassination. When I discovered Chauncey was still alive, I sent him a copy. Imagine my surprise when I was awakened at 4 o'clock in the morning when I was still residing in Duluth, and it was Chauncey Marvin Holt telling me he'd stayed up all night watching my documentary, and he thought I had it right, which I thought was pretty good for a guy who was actually a participant. He, he'd, been, he'd been instructed by his handler... Philip Twombly, while he was working as a contract agent at the Los Angeles Stamp and Stationery Store, where they had legitimate three stores, and then the top two were the CIA ID operation, where they'd also produced the Alec Heidel ID that Oswald used in New Orleans. He was instructed to prepare 15 sets of forged secret service credentials for use in and around Dealey Plaza. He worried about getting the color-coded bin in time, but he did. He took it, instructed to take it to a red pickup truck that was in the, the, behind the grassy knoll that was a part parking lot used by the Dallas police. It wasn't there initially. He wandered around Dealey Plaza. He saw more bad guys' assassins and hitmen than you'd find at a Soldiers of Fortune convention. Went back and found the red pickup truck, uh, left him there, and then he and Charles Harrelson, the father of Woody, who was the tallest of the three tramps, and Charles Rogers, whom he knew as Richard Montoya, went to a boxcar that was full of ammo, explosives, and weapons. And when they were found there, I'm quite confident they were going to be the backup if things didn't work out. You're listening to author and researcher Dr. James Fetzer. Today's show, The Assassination of America, Part 2. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. We have another photograph of the tramps where there's a civilian walking past. He's been identified by Marine Corps General Victor Kulak and by L. Fletcher Prouty as being... General Edward Lansdale, who is responsible for assassinations around the world and where Lansdale appears to have been the supervisor of the mechanics in Dealey Plaza, determining from where they would shoot and in what order. And, and notice, it appears each of the special interest groups had a representative of their own among the shooters. You had a Dallas deputy sheriff, you had an Air Force expert, you had an anti-Castro Cuban, you had a mob guy who also worked for the Lansky syndicate, you had a Dallas police officer, and you had Lyndon's personal hitman. Here's a photograph of Lansdale waiting to speak to George Herbert Walker Bush. Richard 
Hook has done a brilliant job. He's got a wonderful article entitled, Did George Herbert Walker Bush Coordinate a JFK Hit Team? To which the answer appears to be yes. I recommend to all of you, you can find it in Veterans Today. Also there, uh, as uh, I believe uh, John Hankey showed, there are photographs of, of W, who appears to be a bit lost because his father was arrested coming out of the Dow Techs. And he identified himself as a Houston oil man. He was taken and interrogated, but then released and appears to have returned to Dealey Plaza. Here is an astonishing photograph of George Herbert Walker Bush at Skull and Bones with Malcolm Mack Wallace. This shows how tight a group it was. All these people knew each other, had spent a lot of time together. And here, here's a group of CIA officials that were at the corner of Houston and Maine paying their last respects to JFK. They all knew what was going down. Here's one attempt to obfuscate that a Lucien Conin in the middle photograph there was photographed. He was a very notorious assassin. Uh, there was an attempt made to claim it wasn't Lucien Conin, but a man named Robert Adams. But, uh, but Jack White showed that it was Conin and not Adams, that the facial features were those of Conin and not those of Adams, who tried to, whose case was bolstered by a fabricated plaque of an article about him having been awarded for being photographed in Dealey Plaza that had the right day of the week and the right date of the month. Here's Jackie, you know, Lyndon being sworn in. It was during this period that the coffin, the bronze ceremonial coffin, was left unattended in the back of the, of the airplane, and it appears at this point in time that the body was removed and put in a body bag, which would then be offloaded at Andrews. Here's a congressman giving Lyndon a wink for a job well done. Here's, of course, Jack Ruby shooting uh, Lee Oswald, they actually knew each other in New Orleans. It was Judith Baker who said she was astonished when she finally realized that she knew this person as Sparky Rubenstein because she and Lee and Sparky had been uh, acting, doing things together where she was working with David Ferry under the supervision of Dr. Mary Sherman to produce a fast-acting cancer, ostensibly to take out Fidel Castro. Actually, it appears, used on Jack Ruby. Those who claim no one talked just don't know what they're talking about because Sam Giancana, Carlos Traficante, Santos, Marcello all talked about Jack was going to be hit. Lyndon Johnson told Madeline Duncan Brown, his mistress uh, of long time who bore him a son, uh, during a rendezvous at the Driscoll Hotel in Austin, Texas, when she confronted him with rumors on New Year's Eve that he had been involved personally. He blew up at her and told her the CIA and the OL boys had decided he had to be taken out. Chauncey Holt... Uh, Charles Harrelson and a host of others have all talked about it, so it's false that no one talked. When you take into account the cover-up, you realize how many different theories can be eliminated because the mafia, for example, could not have extended its reach into Bethesda Naval Hospital to alter x-rays under control of the president's personal physician, medical officers of the U.S. Navy or the, or the Secret Service agents, anti-Castro-Cubans couldn't have substituted the brain of JFK with someone else's brain. The KGB, even if it had an ability comparable to Hollywood or the CIA, to alter films could not have got a hold of this Pruder, all of which implies, you know, involvement at the highest level so that we have this charade diverting attention onto an alleged lone gunman when, in fact, it was some of the most powerful special interest groups in the country who were in collusion. Noel Twyman... 
most perceptively in his uh, monumental study, Bloody Treason, published in 1997, observed that the perfect conspiracy would have involved LBJ bringing together the Secret Service with the, with the uh, uh, Joint Chiefs and the CIA. The CIA, in turn, of course, would bring in the, the mafia and the anti-Castro Cubans, and that indeed appears to be exactly how it was done. Uh, conservatives were very worried that, that, that you'd have uh, two terms with Jack and then two more with Bobby and then two more with Teddy. It might have been good for the country, but it would have been very bad for them. And in fact, we had a whole succession of presidents, uh, Lyndon Johnson, uh, uh, Richard Nixon, George Herbert Walker Bush, uh, Gerald Ford, all of whom were involved in the assassination or its cover-up one way or another, and eventually W. The whole country was diverted from its course and moved strongly to the right. It was a profound impact. Which, which reflects the fact that the death of John Fitzgerald Kennedy uh, didn't simply represent the assassination of a president, but actually the assassination of America. Thank you. I want to thank you all for being here. You've been a wonderful audience. Okay, I'm invited to answer questions. Yes, please. It's okay. We don't have to have the questions in it. Uh, I did have one final slide I should have put up here. Let me see if I can get it up now, which, which reflects three really stupendous books about the assassination. Well, we've had the benefit of the author of two of them to be here present with us. Those three books are JFK and the Unspeakable, then LBJ, Mastermind of JFK's Assassination, and then the third, Mary's Mosaic. I just want to say how much I admire the authors of those books. Yes? It's still in his thigh. Actually, uh, an effort was made, but it was belated to request permission to remove it from his thigh. But the request was not made before Connolly died, and Nellie dismissed it on the ground that if you wanted that, you should have asked him before he died and refused to allow it to be done. But you're right about the idea of important evidence that was buried with the body, yes. If he wasn't killed in Kiki Plaza, Yes, yes, yes. Well, there's a multiplicity of questions here. Let's see. Uh, yeah, there were backup plans. You know, there's always a plan B and a plan C. I actually believe at Parkland, the anesthesiologist was going to be a backup, that if, if Jack was still alive but he's got undergoed surgery and the excitement and all, the anesthesiologist gives him too much gas and he doesn't survive. Then he could have been taken out at the trademark, which was insecure, had all these balconies. The fallback plan was on the Johnson Ranch where there was going to be a big uh, barbecue. Johnson was throwing it for JFK. Here's an interesting report, and I, I, I wish I had the, the exact source at the tip of my tongue. But there was a couple who heard that there was going to be this big barbecue. It was described to them that JFK was throwing it for Johnson when, of course, it was the other way around. But when they got up there, and this is like late morning before the shooting has taken place, no preparations are being made for this huge barbecue, none at all. So that, you know, it's one of these cases where everyone knew what was going down except for JFK. In fact, Leno Sanic asked Fletcher Prouty repeatedly, how many of his colleagues at the Pentagon knew that Jack was going to be hit? Fletcher himself had been sent off to the South Pole, I believe, actually, by Edward Lansdale, who was then his superior, to get him out of the way, because Fletcher was a righteous guy and wouldn't have put up with any of this. 
And, and uh, he wouldn't answer Len, wouldn't answer Len. Then late one night, they were, were drinking, and, and Len asked him one more time, and Fletcher paused and turned to him and said, all of them. Yeah. Oh, that's just called create confusion. You know, they got half the cabinet. No, if you, these were real JFK people, you know. Uh, this is very interesting. David Lifton pointed this out to me. When Jack created his administration, he relied on Lyndon for recommendations for lots of appointments, and Lyndon made specific point of appointing Johnson people throughout the Kennedy administration. So it was that there was like a, a Johnson administration in waiting for Lyndon to take over. Yeah. He, no, he's in New Zealand on the way to South, uh, South Pole. He was at Christ Church when he saw the newspaper with a report, the quality, studio quality photograph of Lee. But he was on a mission to the South Pole. Yeah. Uh, can you comment on the resemblance between Tippett and Kennedy and the possibility? Well, I went through this a long time ago with Robert Morningstar, and I even pointed out to him, it appeared to me, when the Tippett f- photographs had been flipped. Because he believed that Tippett looked so much like JFK, they could have taken him to Bethesda, to, to use as a stand-in for JFK. I don't actually think that's the case, but, I mean, I like Robert Morningstar. I think he's a good guy. Uh, a a high-quality autopsy was done on Tippett by Earl Rose, who was a celebrated forensic pathologist in Dallas, which was part and parcel of why they had to steal the body. Uh, they wanted to conceal the true causes of death. Earl Rose would have revealed them, so it was essential to steal the body, alter the body, get it under the control of military people who could remove incriminating bullet fragments and the like. Yeah. Oh, I think what you're talking about is at Bethesda Naval Hospital, they actually had a lieutenant commander by the name of Bill Pitzer who took a film, a motion picture of the autopsy. He was a good friend of Dennis David, who was the non-commissioned officer who recorded who entered and left the morgue. I saw Dennis David just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, at a conference in Olney, a very obscure little town in Illinois where they had some very heavy hitters on JFK. And uh, uh, Pitzer was on the verge of retirement, and they they took him out. He was was murdered. It was claimed to be a suicide. They were worried that he might have a copy of the actual autopsy film or whatnot. It was devastating to Dennis David. He's never gotten over it. Yeah. The location of the wounds in well, this is an interesting question. This bullet did a huge amount of internal damage to his organs. I mean, the, the, the report on his internal damage is massive. Something very striking about it is if you have internal wounds, the last thing you want to do is CPR. They perform massive CPR on Oswald. And when they put him in the ambulance, there's no telling how much abuse he might have been subjected to on the way to the hospital. This is a very interesting story. I mentioned Chuck Crenshaw was not only in Trauma Room 1 and was the last to close JFK's eyes, but was responsible for Lee Oswald in Trauma Room 2 two days later. He got a phone call, notified by the operator, switchboard operator Parkland, that he had, a, he, he had a phone call from the President of the United States. He picked up the phone and that familiar voice said that he wanted a deathbed confession. Uh, Crenshaw told Lyndon that actually the patient was 
taking a turn for the better, and he, didn't, he thought he was going to survive. But Lyndon said he would have a man there waiting for a, a, a confession when he got back. He got back, and there was a sinister-looking guy in a trench coat whom I now conjecture was David Sanchez Morales, who is a very nasty piece of work indeed. Oswald, however, took a turn for the worst, died. There was no deathbed confession, but it's a fascinating additional story. Chuck Crenshaw was one of the upright truth-tellers. They they were all intimidated. All those physicians were told by their superiors that if they ever talked about what they'd seen, that their careers would be in jeopardy. So that he wrote a book about it entitled Conspiracy of Silence because they'd all been threatened not to talk. You're listening to author and researcher Dr. James Fetzer. Today's show, The Assassination of America, Part 2. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Yeah. Uh, I think Connolly knew what was going down. Uh, there are photographs there just before the motorcade where most people are very festive. Lyndon looks rather serious and Connolly looks almost petrified. I, I think he knew. You know, that's why Lyndon tried to get him out but was unsuccessful, and there just wasn't time to get word to the assassins. It appears to have been Malcolm Mac Wallace, you know, Lyndon's personal hitman who, who even murdered one of his own sisters, who was shooting at him. Madeline Duncan Brown, Lyndon's uh, this longtime mistress of Lyndon, they began an affair in 1948. He, she bore him his only male offspring out of wedlock, Stephen, in 1950. She and I had over 100 conversations. I interviewed her at, the, at a JFK conference in about 1998. Uh, we had lunch together. Uh, and uh, she had been to the home of Clint Mercus in the Texas Oilman the night before. And J. Edgar Hoover was there. Richard Nixon was there. John J. McCloy was there. George Brown, Brown and Root, Heavy Construction was there. H.L. Hunt was there. This was a ratification meeting, and these heavy hitters disappeared into a boardroom when Lyndon showed up unexpectedly to most. And after they consulted for 15 or 20 minutes, he strode over to her. She expected he was going to whisper sweet nothings in her ear. Instead, he told her in a hateful tone of voice he wasn't going to have to put up with embarrassment from those Kennedy boys after tomorrow, that's not a threat, that's a promise. She actually called him and asked what he meant, and he repeated the same thing, and of course, it was inevitable. Actually, Lyndon was, uh, there was a vote going to take place in the Senate that afternoon on the Bobby Baker scandal that was widely expected to tarnish Lyndon so badly that Jack couldn't run with him again. In fact, Jack had already told his executive secretary, Alvin Lincoln, he was thinking of running with Terry Sanford in North Carolina, but he wasn't going to run with uh, Lyndon. Uh, and Richard Nixon was even quoted in the paper that morning as saying he didn't think Jack would run with LBJ. Uh, Life magazine had been preparing a massive story on Lyndon Johnson, a real, a real doozy, taking him apart for all of his criminal activities that they had prepared in collaboration with Bobby Kennedy. It was providing them information from the Department of Justice. But when, but when, uh, when Jack was taken out and Lyndon became president, the story just went away. Perm index. I think there is something to the perm index business. I do think there is. And that I feel 
For me personally, that's an area that I need to explore more myself. I do there's something about this perm-index thing, and I, I appreciate your bringing it up because I do think it's important and not enough attention. Like the whole Israeli angle, you know, has just not been sufficiently. You've got this Michael Collins Piper who's been bang, 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 banging on this forever, but, you know, too few of us have taken it seriously. See, I've looked at this as a red-blooded all-American operation, you know. Like, I, there were no French hymnmen here. I mean, these, these Texans would have regarded Frenchmen as pansies. They weren't going to count on them. They'd think they were unreliable. But I do think, you know, Jack actually wanted the American-Israeli lobby to be registered as foreign agents. And, of course, that hasn't been done even to this day, in my opinion, we got into a lot of trouble because we've allowed dual national citizens to have high decision-making, policy-forming positions. And this was a major contributor to 9-11. You know, there's members of the Department of the Defense were both U.S. and Israeli citizens, and they wanted the war. So the United States would go into the Middle East and do the dirty work for Israel by dismantling the modern Arab states that were serving as a counterbalance to Israeli domination of the Middle East. And that brought us 9-11. Yes. Did Cuba or Castro take over the United States? Obviously not. Did Russia take over? No, no, no. And Israel sure did. Yeah, that's a fair point, yeah. There's been a vast influence of Israel on American politics. Do, do any of you realize that all the NSA, this massive surveillance of the raw data, all goes directly to Tel Aviv? Edward Lanz? It was all for Israel. And when Dan came home, Israel said, well, flipping around 50 years later, Israel's telling everyone else, no nuclear weapons. Th- thanks, Gary. Yeah, in the back. What do you mean, the blob? The blob was painted in. I mean, even Roderick Ryan agreed the blob was painted. No, the skull flap was legit. That was actually there. What well, was a frangible or exploding bullet? It blew up, and it blew the skull flap open. It entered the right temple, right about here. Yeah. And it went in, that's where those trail of metallic particles, but it, it blew up and it blew open the skull flap, but blew his brains out the back of his head where, where it had already been weakened by the earlier shot to the cranium. Actually, you see, Bob Livingston, that world authority in the human brain, believes that the shot to the throat fragmented, part went to the right lung, the other part went upward and severed this tough membrane that covers the cerebellum. He said cerebellum would not have been extruded even from the close proximity of two shots to the head unless the tentorium had been ruptured and that it had to have been by the fragment from the bullet shot, so actually he was killed by the causal interaction of three shots. He, he was dead in Dealey Plaza. No, 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 no. You got Parkland, they're already reporting extruding cerebellar as well as cerebral tissue. This is all bona fide. This has not got to Bethesda. No one's messing. It's all on the up and up. He had a fist sized blowout that was extruding cerebral and cerebellar tissue. Yes. No witness reported that violent back and to the left you see in the extant version of the Zapruder film. Now, if you can learn more about the shooting, the death of John F. Kennedy, if you go to assassinationresearch.com. And check out the article collating all the witness reports. It runs about 110 pages. It's entitled, What Happened on Elm Street? The Eyewitnesses Speak by John Costella. For example, with regard to the motor, the, the vehicle stop, all four of the motorcycle patrolmen confirmed that the limousine had been brought to a halt. Which, by the way, at this point in time, I now believe may have endured for as much as 14 seconds. 14 seconds. Just ask yourself, how long would it take for... For, for Clint Hill to rush forward, get up on the back, and, you know, push Jackie down and lay across. It takes time. 
And, you know, Bill Newman, who was the closest civilian to the car, said he couldn't believe that they came to a stop. And then he said the Secret Service man got up on the car. But, I mean, he couldn't believe they came to a halt. The mayor's wife said, well, the whole motorcade came to a halt. Everyone knows that. You know, there's no doubt about that. Even Billy Lovelady, as I recall, reported the limo stop. I mean, look, we got like 60 witnesses. You, you go to Murder in Dealey Plaza, and I've got a, there's a whole chapter there uh, by Vince Palomara. But the, be, the better uh, of the witnesses, but a better one is John Costella's in Assassination Research, available online. Oh, I know. Everyone says that. See, that's why there is such an uproar over the claim that the Bruder film has been faked. Uh, because so many think it's the strongest evidence that the man was shot from in front. Well, well, it is, but it's not a legitimate evidence. You know, I mean, he, wa- he was hit from the front, but it just didn't happen the way it's portrayed there. That's a merge of two different wounds. The fact that the film is faked was altered is a more powerful indication who was responsible because it was done by the CIA at Hawkeye Works. So, I mean, there's a deeper understanding than the superficial one that you look in the, at the film and it, it's obvious he was hit from the front. Well, he was hit from the front, but the whole story is much more complicated and subtle. So, I mean, if we want truth, we've got to go for truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And the simple but seemingly convincing argument is not necessarily the best founded. Yeah. We watched a documentary last night, I called Four Days, and there was film from the other side of the street. Yeah, you're talking about the next film. The next film. Well, well, once they altered the Zapruder, they had altered the other film so that no one sees anything different in one film to another. Actually, there is a slight difference in how far Clint Hill goes up in relation to Jackie if you compare the, the Knicks with a Zapruder. He goes a little further in the Knicks. But Jackie's going out after a chunk of Jack's skull and brains. There was, a, there was debris all over the trunk. Uh, Edward, uh, Edwin uh, Swartz, who was a friend of Zapruder, saw the original film and saw Jack's brains in the original film blown back out to the left rear. Secret Service agents in Washington saw the limousine still in the, uh, in the parking area in the garage and became nauseated because Jack's brains were all over the trunk. Well, they had to clean that up. You don't see Jack's brains on the trunk in the extant version of the Zapruder. They had to tidy it up. Anyone else? Yeah. I'm wondering if Oswald knew what was going to happen. Well, it's an interesting question. Uh, Judith, whom we did not have the chance to hear from, believes he was working to try to defeat it. A fellow named Tosh Plumley, who was a pilot, said he flew in as part of an abort team to try to stop it. Abraham Bolden, who was the first black Secret Service agent appointed by JFK, was in Chicago where there was apparently an an attempt forming to take out Jack that was aborted because they got information from an informant named Lee. And uh, Wagner Carr, who was the attorney general of Texas at the time, launched his own investigation immediately and discovered Oswald was working as an informant for the FBI at informant number 179. He was being paid $200 a month right up to the time of the assassination, which may explain the absurdity of the federal government claiming they can't get a hold of his W-2 forms and release them to the public, the alleged assassin of the President of the United States. The reason is obvious, because they would have shown he was being paid $200 a month by the FBI for his work as an informant. See, her whole story has been suppressed because she humanizes him. This is supposed to be a lone, demented, antisocial, 
He wasn't at all. He was intelligent. He was sociable. They had a very affectional relationship. He shared with her a lot of his problems with Maria. Hey, by the way, you're going to love this. When I was down there in Olney with this little conference where I saw Dennis David, Ed Tetra was rather well known in the community. He said he just, he'd had a conversation with Maria, Marina over the phone, and they talked about the man in the doorway, and Marina had said that was Lee's shirt and that she'd washed it. See, now, because that's coming secondhand to me, I'm trying to get confirmation. I really wanted Ed to send me at least his statement, so it would be only one handoff, but what I, what I got was from the guy who organized the conference, because Tetro, for whatever, didn't want to be accessible by email. So I got him saying it. I heard him say it, that Marina had told him that it was Lee's shirt and that she'd washed it, which is pretty good. Pretty good. Additional evidence if we needed any. We don't really. So I really think this thing is settled, and it shocks me that you have people like Robert Grodin, who's denying that this is Oswald in the doorway. We've had some significant additions to the Oswald Innocence Campaign, by the way. Uh, Mark Lane has joined. Uh, Vince Salandria, who is one of the most highly regarded of early generation critics, has joined. Um, Gerald McKnight, the historian, has joined. There are are a couple others. If you go online to Oswald Innocence Campaign, you'll see about 20 of the most prominent members of the organization. I got to say, I thought this is a really good audience. You're very sophisticated. Yeah. Well, I have three earlier books. I have, you know, these are collections of studies by experts on different aspects. Assassination Science, 1998, Murder in Dealey Plaza, 2000, The Great Zabruder Film Hoax, 2003. Uh, My most recent presentations were uh, What Happened to JFK and Why It Matters Today. I gave at the University of Wisconsin-Madison on 22 November 2011. Then I've got a two-parter from 2012, entitled JFK Part 1, A National Security Event, Oswald Didn't Do It, JFK Part 2, A National Security Event, How It Was Done. And right now, Gary King of New Orleans and I are working on refurbishing a version that I gave at ConspiracyCon earlier this year that is going to be virtually as complete as what you heard here. So that, that'll be out, and that's going to be entitled JFK at 50, The Who, The How, and The Why. been listening to Dr. James Fetzer. Today's show has been The Assassination of America, Part 2. A former Marine Corps officer, Jim Fetzer has published widely on the theoretical foundations of scientific knowledge, computer science, artificial intelligence, cognitive science, and evolution and mentality. McKnight Professor Emeritus at the University of Minnesota Duluth, he has also conducted extensive research into the assassination of JFK, the events of 9-11, and the plane crash that killed Senator Wellstone. The founder of Scholars for 9-11 Truth, his latest books include The Evolution of Intelligence, The 9-11 Conspiracy, Render Unto Darwin, and The Place of Probability in Science. Jim Fetzer's most recent articles can be found at www.veteranstoday.com. That's veteranstoday.com forward slash author forward slash Fetzer. He co-edits two websites, assassinationresearch.com, that's assassinationresearch.com, and assassinationscience.com, that's assassinationscience.com. 
He can be reached by email at jfetzer at d.umn.edu. That's j-f-e-t-z-e-r at d.umn.edu. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. That's F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.org. Trying to steal your life, you know what I'm saying?